Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people to become fully surrendered followers of King Jesus. Good morning. Daniel and Missy, thanks for your leadership. Thanks for contending. Um, we're, we're all about uh, helping a group of people, a body of believers, um, enter into a fully surrendered um, life and learning to abide in the person and presence of Jesus. So if you're new to church or if you're new to an experience like that, um, we don't think church should be totally controlled and watertight and slick and perfect. Life isn't perfect or watertight or totally controlled, is it? So we're, we're in the journey. We're sharing one with another. Um, so, so way to go, Missy and Daniel. Thank you. That was beautiful. Okay, I am, uh, let me do a quick flyover, um, tell you where we're going, tell you why we're going there, um, and uh, then we'll roll that way. So we are launching um, small groups this week. If you're not in a small group, we'd love for you to get in one. If you want to lead one or host one at your house, we have like questions. You're just going to be pulling questions right out of our sermon. Um, so you can do that. If you're too timid to do either of those things, you can show up on Thursday nights at our offices, which is at 3233 Burnt Mill um, over across from UNCW and Flying Machine Brewery. Um, and that's from like 7 to no, 6 to 7, when is it, someone tell me? 6 to 7.30. Thank you, Cynthia. Okay, so that's, that's what's happening. This Sunday is actually called Making Waves Sunday, so we're, we're asking you to join us in Making Waves. So at the end of this service, I'm going to dismiss us, and the ask is that you'd go right outside and join us in the cafeteria for lunch, grab a sandwich, grab a bag of chips and a water, and um, then you would be able to sort of mix and mingle at all the different tables with all the ministries from our church. Does that make sense? So you're going to hear me talk about making waves today. Next Sunday, I'm going to tie up our John series. We've been in John for nine months. We've gone through the entire book of John. I'm going to tie it up next Sunday, and then we're moving towards the book of Acts. Okay, pretty, pretty profound, um, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to do that. Okay, so this morning is called Making Waves, but it's really a case study of the Church of Jerusalem, the Church of Antioch, and the Church of Ephesus. Um, now, there's something that happens in my house most Sunday afternoons between Abby and I, and this is how it goes. Michael, says Abby, uh, you were so good today, maybe, uh, but there's this thing that you do where you're like teeing it up, and you're teeing it up, and you're teeing it up, and you're setting the table, and you're setting the table, and it's like there's this moment where you've done so much of that, we all go, it's like, so what? What does this mean now? How does this impact us? So everybody say, so what? So what? We're actually going to move towards that. And I do this every Sunday. Sometimes it takes me longer. Sometimes it takes me less long. But we're moving towards this moment. And the purpose of looking at the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, and the church in Ephesus is actually to pivot and go the church of Saltbox, the church in Wilmington, the church in North Carolina, the church in the United States, and the church around the world now, today. Make sense? But sometimes my pivot comes a little slow, as my wife points out. She's like, maybe pivot faster. I'm like, okay, got it. So bear with me today uh, because we're, we're, we're actually tackling a number of scriptures um, and we're going to tee this whole thing up and see if I can get my hands around it. So as we do that, let's talk about making waves. Um, does anybody surf? Come on, Daniel. Okay, I got a few of us. A few of us. Come on, come on. I see some. All right, that's good. Okay. 
I love to surf. I've been surfing a long time. Um, in my opinion, for as long as I've been surfing, I'm like a rip-roaring, mediocre surfer. Like, I, I mean, I've been surfing a long time. I ought to be a lot better, but I just enjoy to do it. So here's what, what happened. Hurricane Ian that just came through uh, rolled across Florida. We're still praying for them. I'm not... Um, making any comment there, but then it entered into the Atlantic from the Gulf and it started barreling up our coast. And remember that Friday when it was like rainy all day and kind of windy? Well, I called my buddy. This is my like hurricane surf buddy. And I said, hey, what you doing? He said, I don't know. And I said, I bet Mason Burrow's breaking and the weight, you know, the rain is pouring and it's like a gnarly day. We get out in his boat. There's three foot standing waves in the intercoastal waterway. You know, so we're going, oh, blah, blah. we put on full suits because it was kind of cold. We're going over there. We anchor up. Guess how many boats are at Masonboro? We <laughs> tell you how smart this is. But one of my favorite things to do is when you when you uh, snuggle up over on Masonboro Island to the jetty. So it's the, the northernmost jetty on Masonboro Island. There's a north wind blowing. So the current's blocked and the wind is blocked. And right on the other side of the jetty, it breaks. And on big hurricane swells, it actually breaks towards the end of the jetty. And one of my favorite things is to take a bigger board and to paddle out when those bigger waves are breaking just because of the energy and the size of what's happening in the water. It's like, wow. So I paddled out there. It's about a 20 minute paddle out. Um, long time, long way out. And uh, I caught six waves. I rode five. One broke on top of me and they laughed at me and it just like rolled me down the face and I disappeared for a few seconds and then popped back up. But what I love and, and what we as surfers who raised our hands love is in the fall on the East Coast, um, Africa begins to spit out these like tropical storms and depressions. And off of those tropical storms and depressions come waves. And, and what's amazing is those waves, we, it can be like sunny and perfect around here, and we're experiencing waves in August, September, and October from these tropical storms and depressions. And the, this storm is actually sending waves. It becomes an epicenter, a sending um, sort of locale that is sending waves possibly thousands of miles away from it. Make sense? Ready for the pivot? We as church, we, we as a church and we as the church are actually called to be an epicenter of the kingdom of God, of the presence of God, of the person of Jesus that is actually sending and making waves that is felt thousands and thousands of miles away from us. You hear me? That's what church is about. So it's not just like we come because we feel needy or busted or broken. All that's okay. But we actually are attending a living, breathing organism called the body of Christ. We are living life one with another, albeit very imperfectly. And as we're doing that, we are beginning to make this ripple effect or making waves that can be felt thousands, hopefully, of miles away. Now, what's fascinating is we're going to look at three churches in the New Testament um, we're going to be in Acts 11 uh, is where I'm going to start. If you want to open your Bible, we're a Bible church. Some of you are carrying your Bibles. I love a paper Bible. Feel free to scroll if you don't have one. Uh, Acts 11 is where we're heading. Um, but we're going to look at the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem actually um, begins to falter. Um, and we're going to talk about why. Then there's this church in Antioch that begins to rise. And I want to look at why. That's the big question. Why does the church in Antioch thrive? What is going on in the hearts of the leaders and the hearts of the people? Um, and there's another church called Ephesus that I believe was given the same opportunity as the church in Antioch to actually make waves. Come on, say that with me. To actually make waves. Okay, here we go. So I am in Acts 11. 
I forgot something. <laughs> uh, I'm going to tee this up. I'm going to tee up Acts 11 so you can hold your finger there if you like. I'm going to read two directives of Christ Jesus, and I want to measure these, two, these three churches from these two directives of Christ. Okay? All right, so Matthew 28, you can turn here if you like, and I'll be right back to Acts 11. But Matthew 28, verse 16 uh, to 20, here's what Jesus says. Here's what it says. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Isn't that interesting? They went to a mountain. This is one of my favorite spots in all of Israel is this mountain where Jesus told them to go. It's this little spot called Aramis Heights. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love that they put that kind of stuff in scripture. Doesn't that make you feel good? But some doubted. Okay. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what based on that is a church supposed to do? I'd say two things. Number one, reach lost people. So we actually exist. We in here exist for the people who are out there. We're called to make waves for the people who are out there. So number one, the church exists for the people who are out there. Number two, the church exists to make disciples of believers. So it's not enough that you just come here on Sunday and you read your Bible or you come have a great worship experience or you come and hear Missy and Daniel like, man, that was so good. I feel good. But the actual goal of this is that you get in the rigorous uh, journey with Jesus day by day, moment by moment. You begin to share life with other believers who are also limping and going through the journey together, asking each other's forgiveness, messing up, rolling along. And, and in that process, um, we become a living, breathing church that is both reaching lost people and making disciples. Make sense? That's what the church exists for. Okay, the other uh, setting of the table I'm going to do is Acts 1, verse 8. In fact, uh, David, if you're back on our screen, will you put that up for me? That slide up? Oh, look at that. Okay, uh, Acts 1, verse 8 says, but you will receive power. Now, who will receive power? Who? But, but you will receive power. Now, who will receive power? You, us, say me. Say we. Okay, but you, we, me, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we have two directives of Christ. That go, the Great Commission, go and tell lost people, go and tell them all. That's also where the name Saltbox came from, by the way, where I stood exactly, almost certainly, where Jesus said, go and tell them all, teach them, make disciples. Um, so reach lost people, make disciples, and then Jesus defines our sphere of influence by saying, go to Jerusalem, Judea, which is a larger circle, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he begins to define the mission of the local church. So like as a pastor, um, the greatest uh, concern or, or um, if I would even say fear I have as, of being a pastor is that all we do is create a great social club. Or we create a great cool place for people to come. And nothing's wrong with that being social and nothing's wrong with a great cool place. But what is at the heartbeat of all of this is that each of us as believers would become progressively more deeply and intimately acquainted with the person of Jesus, practicing his presence day by day, finding ourselves in the word, finding the, Holy, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in us, and then actually making waves out there, bringing lost people to Jesus and helping make disciples of those who are believers. Does that make sense? That's the church. 
And, and at the end of this, I'm 41, and I figure maybe I got 35 years if the Lord lets me live that long, or 40 years maybe in ministry ahead of me. I have no idea. But at the end of that time, I actually want to look back and not go, we built the biggest church around, or we planted the most, you know, or we did it, or we have the biggest platform, or I have the biggest whatever. No, no. I want to say, we influenced and made waves and sent more. And we're going to actually like dig into this. Come on, we can clap that for Jesus, but that's the call. And if this thing isn't like bigger than me and isn't bigger than you, and if it isn't about me and isn't about you, then it's got to be about him. And we got to be about something that's so much bigger than every one of us, because it's got to be worth like investing our life and our time and our money and all of our stuff in, you know, come on. Okay. All right. If you've never been here before, I get excited. Okay, so we got two directives of Jesus, go and make disciples. Second directive, Acts 1-8, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. I'm going to bring this back at the end, this very same slide, but we're going to pivot it for our church today uh, so you can wait for that. Okay, now back to Acts 11. Acts 11. Acts 11, and we're going to start reading in verse 19. Okay. Acts eleven nineteen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay, Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. All right, so what just happened? Stephen, there's this guy in the book of Acts. We're actually going to look at it in the weeks ahead. But there's a guy in the book of Acts who is actually um, tasked with helping um, the widows. And uh, Stephen gets up and he preaches this like anointed, amazing sermon. And all the religious people of the day actually come and they kill him. Okay, so what happens in the church? What would happen for us as a church if the religious leaders and the political leaders of the day marched in here on a Sunday morning and drug out somebody and killed them outside the church? Like, like think about that a second. Like, seriously. Would you come next week? We might have to pivot into like an underground house church. But go there a second. People are afraid. Okay? Jesus has now been killed. Um, Stephen's now been killed. Other Christians have been thrown in jail. James is about to be killed. Like the word on the street is if you're a Jesus follower, you're going to die. Okay? So what I love about God, though, is he uses the, the evil of humans, the evil of the enemy. He uses human evil to scatter. That's what the word says here, scatter. Um, but what he's actually doing is sending the church. Right? So go back. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Say Antioch. The church of Antioch is enormously important in Acts. Okay. They were spreading the word only among the Jews. Now, tell me about that. There's prejudice in the early church. That's what that means. So who are they preaching to? Only the Jews. Okay, so that means we're out uh, as Christians and we're looking for a, a certain type of person or a certain, and we're only going to go share with the Jews. And what happens next is amazing to me. Uh, some of them, however, and we don't even know who this is, but some of them, however, uh, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and to began to speak to the Greeks also. They begin to break with the tradition and they start preaching to the Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. Say that with me. The Lord's hand was with them. 
And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so now remember, at this moment, the epicenter of the New Testament church is Jerusalem. It's where Jesus died. It's where Pentecost happened, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks. Um, But it is where Peter erupted out of that upper room. He preached a great sermon. 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. It's like the epicenter currently in this moment of the local church. So, they hear, the leaders of the local church hear that way up in Antioch, what's happening? Come on. A revi- I like that. Our revival's breaking out up in Antioch. Well, what do the leaders do in Jerusalem? They might have gotten a little defensive. They might have gotten scared. Wow, what's God doing up there? We better send somebody up to check it out, see if it's legitimate, and authenticate it. So who do they send? News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, let me make one little statement here. If they didn't send Barnabas, if they sent somebody who was more critical or somebody who didn't have a heart to discern truly the things of God, or if they sent someone who, you know, wanted uh, control, I think that this entire move of God could have been absolutely squelched right here. But they sent Barnabas. So let's look. They sent Barnabas to Antioch when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done. So who is he crediting? God, absolutely. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So what's happening? People are coming to Jesus because of their faithfulness, because of Barnabas' faithfulness, and so they're growing. Now, I love what's next, and we're going to talk about this in the, in the weeks and months ahead, but there's this guy named um, uh, Saul of Tarsus who was actually killing and persecuting Christians. He comes to faith in Christ, and he was a, a Pharisee. He was a religious guy, and so God takes this religious guy who's got all this background and experience in rabbinic tradition in the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament word, and he takes him so that he can help Gentile or non-Jewish people understand the God of the Bible. Does make sense? So what Barnabas does here, which is amazing, is he recognizes that these are a bunch of um, Greek people. These are a bunch of non-Jewish people. They have no reference to Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. They have no reference to the Psalms or Isaiah or Jeremiah. They have no reference to the God of the Bible. And if we don't help them um, anchor their faith to the Bible and understand the God of the Bible, what's going to happen? They'll probably drift off into weirdness. And any church that leaves the Bible drifts off into weirdness. That's right. Okay, so uh, Barnabas then went to Tarsus. He knows he needs to get someone who can help them ground and anchor their faith to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Some people like to say that the New Testament church was just house churches. Let's evaluate that statement. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. They were meeting in large places. They're teaching great numbers of people. They're gathering corporately. And I believe that the church of Jesus Christ must be both a house group, a small group, and a corporate gathering. And it shouldn't be either or. You find Jesus in both places as we see here. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This was a very derogatory term, Christian, very derogatory. But they adopted it and they owned it. 
Verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, if you're not a Bible person or a church person, a, a prophetic person is someone who is hearing something that is um, encouraging or challenging or affirming from God and then speaking that to the body of Christ. It's just a Bible word for helping people understand God's word. Okay? Um, they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. So they're in one of these gatherings. Somebody stood up and said there's going to be a famine that's going to spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Verse 29, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the believers. What does that mean? They pulled out their what? Their wallet, and they... They passed a collection. They made a big pile of who knows what, maybe some jewelry and some gold and some money and some things and whatever they had and maybe some grain and some horses and who knows. And then uh, the disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help. Also notice what they call the believers. What they call the believers, verse 29, the what? Disciples. Does your version say Brothers. My translation says disciples, the disciples. Each of us as believers becomes what did Jesus tell us to do? Go and make. I love that Luke writes it this way. The disciples. So he's talking about every member of the church as each one was able, decided to, go, to provide help for the unbelievers living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul take their wagon load of goods and whatever, and what do they do? Drive it back to uh, Jerusalem so that they can provide help. Okay, now flip over with me. Remember, my pivot's coming if you're going, so what? Wait for it. Okay, uh, Acts um, 12, one chapter over, start at verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. That is one of the ways that you know whether a church is an authentically full of the spirit of Jesus church. Is the word of God continuing to increase and spread? Verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission. Now, what was their mission? Yeah, to deliver that big old wagon. I'm assuming it's a wagon load. Maybe it was a horse load, but I imagine it was a wagon load of goods. They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, 13 verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger. He was an African man, is what every Greek church that I could tell you. Lucius, um, or Simon of Cyrene. Now, um, I, I, I want to park here for just a minute. If you've ever read the story of Jesus, and if you haven't read the story of Jesus being crucified, you ought to read it. But in the, I think it's the Gospel of Luke. Um, but the Roman soldiers are with Jesus. There was four Roman soldiers. Jesus was in the center. He's carrying his crossbar of the cross, and he stumbles and falls. Now, under Roman law, all the Romans can grab somebody out of the crowd, make them come up and carry the crossbar, and they picked a guy named Simon of Cyrene. And so Simon of Cyrene actually carries Jesus' crossbar all the way up to the hill called Golgotha, where they crucified Jesus. Now, go back. The leaders of the church were Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of, or Simon of Cyrene. Who was that? The guy, now, I can't like prove with like 
infallible evidence, but I'm almost positive this is the very man. He was almost assuredly African. That means he was dark-skinned and he carried the cross of Jesus. And what's about to happen that you're about to see here in this text is the very um, church uh, that is going to become the cradle of modern Christianity as we know it, the church that made waves throughout the millennia now, the church that we are still experiencing the waves of today was founded and led in part by the very man that carried the cross of Christ who was likely a black-skinned African. Somebody needs to clap on that one. Now, is it not amazing that possibly or likely the man that carried the cross of Christ becomes a leader of the church that carries the message of the gospel of Christ Jesus to the entire known world? It's like, oh. Lucius or Simon of Cyrene, Mahan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, so we got a political person in there, and then Saul, who's also called Paul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Now what work? To go, what were the mandates of Jesus? Go and make disciples, go lead lost people to Jesus, and... It's not up there anymore. Don't need to be. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends the earth. So that's the work. Okay. So set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, I love that they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them. If you ever wonder why we do things like place hands on each other, there it is. So they placed their hands on each other to pray, and then they send them off. That's right. It's 11 o'clock. Some of our volunteers are slipping out to get ready for our Making Waves lunch. I'm so glad they did that because I forgot. Okay. All right. So um, there is a cataclysmic shift right here in the book of Acts. And I can't unpack the entirety of the whole thing, but there is a shift from the church in Jerusalem, which is the current epicenter of the Christian world, of the Jesus movement and the Jesus people. The the church in Jerusalem is it. And all of a sudden, uh, right off the pages of Scripture, we we almost don't even hear about the Jerusalem church anymore. And Antioch raises up as the epicenter, um, or like the storm, the hurricane that's now sending out waves, making waves that are affecting the entire known world. And it, it's really that that I want to um, talk about because it's, it's this, um, it, it is why was there an epicenter shift? Why did, in fact, if we were in like a seminary class, they would say the church in Antioch is the cradle of Christianity. The church in Antioch was the place from which Paul and Barnabas were sent on three missionary journeys. It was the place and the church from which all of the known world was actually evangelized. They made disciples and they, were, they launched and sent the entire church as we know it from the church in Antioch. So the question is, why is there a shift from Jerusalem to Antioch? And now I want to interject one more thing. And this is based on my sort of knowledge and research of the entirety of Scripture. But I believe there's a third church. We're not going to spend all that much time on it. But um, cross-reference Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. This is the church in Ephesus, and I have been there. One of the things before Abby and I planted this church that I wanted to do was go stand in the archaeological ruins of the seven churches of Revelation. Do you know why? Some of you have heard me say this. Because five of the seven of those churches get a firm rebuke from the Lord Jesus. 
It's terrible odds for a church planner. But I wanted to go and go, what did they do wrong? What can we learn? How can we be an authentic church that goes the distance and finishes well? You hear me? Okay, so this is the Lord Jesus speaking. I'm in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. I told you there was a big wind-up today. Um, And this is what uh, the Lord Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So what did the church in Ephesus do? They lost their first love. They forsook their first love. Who was their first love? Jesus. And each other. Each other. First Jesus and then each other. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, which is a picture of the light of Christ. Um, Light of the world, salt of the world, that's what we're called to be. Okay, so let's look at this for just a minute. Why uh, did the epicenter of Christianity shift from Jerusalem to Antioch? Did the Jewish people living in Jerusalem continue to accept and embrace Jesus as the Messiah? No. Can a group of people reject the person and presence of God, and can the gracious hand of God uh, depart and raise up another church or group or place? That's what's happening. That's what's happening right here. So there is a slowing down, and, and I'm, I, I, you can't negate the sovereign hand of God in this, but I'm not really talking about the sovereign hand of God today because I think all that is within his bookends. But what I'm talking about is why does the church of Jerusalem begin to decline? Why does Antioch rise as a cradle of Christianity? And why, and I would say that Ephesus had the opportunity to be another cradle of Christianity, I think, in God's eternal sphere, and this is my opinion, it's not perfectly scripture, but I believe God intended the church of Jerusalem, the church of Antioch, and the church of Ephesus to be the three epicenters of the Christian faith. But there is a decline because people are hardening their hearts against the Lord Jesus. They refuse to accept him as Messiah. The Jerusalem church goes into a decline. The cradle of Christianity, Antioch, begins to rise up. And if you read the book of Ephesians and the book of Revelation, I believe the same offer was in place for the church in Ephesus. And it would appear that the church in Ephesus did what? What did they do that made them not be another cradle of Christianity? They lost their first love. So the question then for us becomes, why Antioch? What was it about their heart posture? What makes them the cradle of Christianity? And what made them so effective as a church that they're still making waves today? Now, does any of you know about the church in Antioch? But do any of you know about the person of Jesus? Who carried the person of Jesus? Church in Antioch. See, the goal of the church and the goal even of our church, I'm going to open this up, is not necessarily to just plant a bunch more salt box campuses and places and things or build our brand or build our name. The church is, the, the idea is actually that at some point people don't even know who Saltbox was or who Michael was or who we were, but who do they know? Jesus, they know the kingdom of God. And in this time and in this, in this space, with all of the influence and all of the finances and all the leadership and everything that God has given to us, may we become a sending epicenter that so makes waves that it lives way on beyond us. May we be a group of people that accesses the kingdom of God in such a supernatural way that by faith we send more than we keep. 
You hear me? So if there's some things that I want us to begin to see about Antioch, here they are. Uh, number one, um, Antioch was the third greatest city in the Roman world after Rome and Alexandria. Okay, that's just a point of background. Uh, Acts eleven twenty one. we just read it, said the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So the question to begin to wrestle with is, um, how do you know if the gracious, hand is on, the gracious hand of the Lord is on your life? And how do you know if the gracious hand of the Lord is on your church? Guess where you don't want to go to church? You hear me? I've lived, I lived, lived seven years of my life out from under the gracious hand of God. And it was the darkest, ugliest time. I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever even want to lead a church where the gracious hand of God is not always respected, honored, his person and presence is looked to. It must be that the gracious hand of God is here. All right, the third thing that I see just as background is they are a multi-ethnic church. Just read it. Just told you about the people, the men who actually led it. They're a multi-ethnic church. Were white Europeans even in the mix now? No. Blonde hair, bald people weren't even part of the equation. You hear me? I think the other thing, let's just go back through this because I think it's worth mentioning. You have um, Simon called Niger. He's African. That's also a Roman name. So he was probably highly influential African, or African man that rolled in Roman circles. You have Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus, so another nationality. You have Simon of Cyrene. Um, so, so Cyrene um, is in North Africa. So probably, again, you have the man that carried the cross of Christ who's part of the leadership here in Antioch. Then you've got Mahan, who's the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. So connections to aristocracy and politics. And then you have Paul, who's a Jew and a trained rabbi. Can you get any more diverse? I mean, you hear that? There's a bunch of like different people who have come together and said, we are called to lead this church. This is where, in my opinion, that the Jewish and the Gentile divide was overcome. There's hatred and animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. For many reasons, I'm not going to go into it. But this is where they began to preach to the Greeks and Jews and Gentiles begin to come together under one banner of King Jesus. It's the first place where Christians begin to step out of simply being called Jews or Gentiles, and they actually begin to call them Jesus people or Christian. That's what happened. Antioch is intimately connected with the early history of the gospel. It was the central point from where all three missionary journeys um, of the Gentiles were sent following the Great Commission and the call to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Um, Paul systematically began his ministry here. All of his missionary journeys began and ended here. And in my opinion, they owned the Great Commission. They owned it. Okay, so the question is, why Antioch? Let's just dig into this, and then we're going to pivot into us. Number one, I would say the heart posture of its leaders. Humility before God. When God spoke, we just read it. A little prophetic word came forward. What did the people do? 
took up a collection. They listened. They obeyed. So number one, the heart posture of its leaders. They uh, accessed the kingdom of God and their personal destiny, their destiny even as a church. Um, I would also say that's obedience to the directives of Jesus and the word of the Holy Spirit. Now, I also see a heart posture of the church. In other words, the church isn't just about um, Michael or the lead team or the trustees or the overseers. It's actually about who? Say me. It's us. So the collective um, presence and power of the kingdom of God coming or not coming, his gracious hand resting on us is not just about Michael or just about our lead team or elders or trustees, but it's actually about every one of us. The other thing that I notice here is the emphasis is actually on sending, okay, not seating. In other words, they didn't get hung up. Can you imagine the church in Antioch talking about how big their auditorium was? Can you imagine the church in Antioch putting out a statement about how many people attended? Like, I'm being tongue-in-cheek about the American church. Like, you're getting that. But, but the idea here is this is a group of people who is more interested in sending, in making waves, and making disciples. That's right. They're actually more interested in what's going on out there. And somehow, and I don't know how, but this group of believers must have cultivated hearts before God that didn't lose their first love, that didn't give up, that didn't stop pursuing him, that didn't stop responding to him, that didn't stop obeying. And it wasn't just the leaders. It was partly the leaders, but it was also the people. It's the collective us. And when a collective us comes together as a church and says, we're going to do the messy Jesus journey of life together, albeit we're imperfect and We don't always get it right. We're going to do it together. We're going to journey together. The very presence and power of the kingdom of God is released upon a people. And when the presence and power of God is released upon a people, you can begin to see transformation of a city or a state or a seaboard or a nation. And you begin to see churches like Antioch that rise up where people are rigorously focused on the person and presence of God, obeying him, listening to him, abiding in him, all of them, not just a great preacher or a great worship leader, but everybody collectively is walking with Jesus and all of a sudden a church that makes waves for hundreds and hundreds of years is born. You hear that? It's like, ah, Jesus. I think that there is a willingness to be big-minded and big-hearted. Did they care for other churches? Yes. Did they take up a collection? Yes. Did they try to help other people? Yes. Were they concerned about the lost and broken Gentile world? Yes, and they prayed and commissioned Barnabas and Paul to go in, make waves, go in, make disciples, go in, travel down the salt roads and reach Gentiles who were lost. The other thing we see is radical generosity. (sighs) Radical generosity. We don't pass a plate. Have you ever noticed that? We just don't do that. There's a box out there. You can give out there. You can give online. We don't pass a plate because I don't want anybody to feel like I've got to give to be here. You know, anybody ever give you something? There's like a tip jar and you're like, I better give something. We don't want it to be like that. But I want you to hear something. What you do with your money matters. Okay? The reason God calls us to give from Genesis to Revelation, we could talk about the tithe, we could talk about all sorts of things, but the reason he calls you to give is because you are relinquishing control over your finances. And it's an outward act of an inward surrender before King Jesus. Now, let me say something that is slightly controversial. 
Um, I think you should give and you should tithe. I think tithe's a minimum. That's 10% in the Old Testament that you should give and tithe to your local church. That's my personal belief. Um, if you can't give to Saltbox, find somewhere to give. Do you hear me? I'm not asking that you walk out and give in that box, but here's what I'm saying. The gracious hand of God, I believe, rests on the church of Antioch because when a need arose, the believers did what? If you can't give here, find somewhere to give. Find somewhere to give because what God is more interested than the amount that you're giving or the check or even the regularity is that that you're giving and there's something about the kingdom of God, the anointing of King Jesus, the presence of God and what God is doing on a certain people at a certain time that is in proportion with their willingness to. In other words, when we give, what happens? God gives to us. And it's not a, you know, this isn't a, a like health, wealth, and prosperity. I don't even believe in all that. But here's what I do believe in. If you're in Jesus, you're going to suffer big. You're going to have hardships. You're called to make waves, but you're also called to give. If you can't give here, find somewhere to give. And I would say give regularly and give generously. Abby and I give a set percent every month. Cut our little check and put it in. Okay. The other thing I see about this church is they're outward focused. And the last thing I see as a church is they're all about listening and obeying the voice of God. All right, let me pivot into us and I'll tie this together. I believe Saltbox has an opportunity to be an epicenter of faith. Is that about Michael? Everybody shake your head. Is that about Missy and Daniel or Steve or Meg or anybody that stood up here? Who's that about? It's about Jesus, absolutely. And then it's about the collective us. But I believe that God has called us as a church to be a modern epicenter of faith. What does that even mean? I believe we are called to make waves that will impact a generation for King Jesus and maybe even impact generations beyond us. I would never, and we have worked really hard not to copycat or mimic what anyone else is doing. A lot of churches in America, we find out what's working and we're going to go do it. No, no, no. We're going to contend for what God is doing next, what he is doing now, and we're going to attempt to put that into play, to pioneer new ways of thinking, new ways of doing church. Some ways, sometimes it'll be returning to old ways of doing church. You hear me? But it is to commit to following what the Holy Spirit is doing now. <clears throat> we are called as a church to lead people to become fully surrendered followers of Christ. And one of the things that we're called to do is to create transferable vehicles that empower the global church or the larger church. Like, what does that mean, Michael? Let me tell you. Have you seen our little yellow truck? Who's seen it? Some of our coffee's out there. You can buy it or sell it. Here's the idea of the yellow truck. It is a tool that gets us out of the building sharing Jesus and serving coffee. That's all it is. But you pull that thing up to a school. We serve schools all the time. 
Um, you pull that thing up to a school and we give coffee away. There's no chip, tip jar on it. We just say, thank you. Thank you for serving. We pull it up to doctor's offices and hospitals and serve the nurses and fire stations and police. I mean, we've been all over the place we, and we keep going. But the idea of that little yellow truck is that we would actually build a tool that not just works here at Saltbox, but we would begin to franchise it, not for money, but in a nonprofit way so that a little church in Raleigh, Durham or a church up in D.C. or a church in Nevada who wants to reinvigorate themselves to evangelize their city could come to us and say, hey, would you help us launch our own yellow truck? And what do we say? Yes, let us get you set up. Let's build the whole thing. This is how you do it. This is the cost of it. This is how you set it up. We'll come out there and train your church. So all of a sudden we're making waves. Does anybody know salt boxes involved? No, but we're flying somewhere and we're training somebody and we're putting a transferable something into their hands so that they can begin to reach out and engage their city. It's so much bigger than one truck. It's like, let's build a tool in this little yellow truck that could actually be used to evangelize and reach the larger body of Christ because a lot of churches right now are becoming insulated, isolated, and inward focused going, oh, it's bad out there, so we need to stay in here. And I'm going, no, 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 about face. Everybody turn around, start looking outward, get yourself a little yellow truck, start engaging your city, start reaching out to people who are in poverty, start reaching out to people who are broken. Let's do something different and begin to energize not just this, church, but the church. You hear me? The other thing that we'd like to do, and this is a, this is a thing before God, is that Abby and I used to um, run, we were the executive directors of a summer camp, and we would like to relaunch Summer Salt Summer Camp. It'll cost us about $175,000 in startup costs and to pay a directorial team. We used to see 1,200 kids a summer come through camp. And we were seeing 150 kids a summer give their life to Jesus. And we were seeing those families who didn't know Jesus and who weren't in church all of a sudden coming going, what's happening? But the idea, even with the summer camp, is that we'd actually build something that another church in another country or in another place could come and go, here's the training module, and here's how you do it, and here's who you need as a director, an assistant director, and this is how you put it all together. And then all of a sudden, uh, someone who's pastoring a church elsewhere could come, and we could hand it to them and empower them to what? Go back build it in their city, build it in their place, and engage their city. So we're building tools that would transferably impact and affect the larger body of Christ. I believe God has called us to develop and build a number of those. Another thing that we're working on, I've got a group of uh, 10 guys, we just called it the Jesus Journey Discipleship Group. And some of them will end up in ministry, some of them are going to stay in full-time business. But the idea is that we're taking a group through a one-year journey. It's like this rigorous journey where they're, uh, they're reading a book a month, they got a five-year journal, they got a one-year Bible, we're meeting together, we're sharing deeply, like totally authentic, like, whoa, you wouldn't even believe it. Like, it is, but we're watching, there's homework every month, there's things that they're working on, but we're sort of pioneering this little idea of what if we actually began to train people? So this is a one-year journey. What if there was a two-year journey? Or what if somebody came and said, hey, I want to be a pastor? What if we could actually plug them in and say, great, serve at Saltbox for two years, and then we're going to launch you to be a pastor in wherever God's called you? 
Raleigh-Durham, okay? Go with the second. A lot of you have been a part of churches and you go, we don't want to do campuses. The point of a campus is that you would launch a pastor who says, I want to be a pastor, so journey here for two years. Launch and go plant your church in Raleigh-Durham and you be a campus for two years until you can be launched and stand on your own two feet. You follow me? Am I, am I losing y'all? This is like, so the idea is that, you know, planning a church is so hard because you've got to have finances and you've got to have executive leadership and you've got to have boards and coverings. Then you've got to preach every single week. It is so hard. But if you have a sending, covering church who could send a group to Raleigh-Durham, uh, who could send them maybe with a yellow truck or with a summer camp and they go up there and plant and that pastor only needs to preach 12 times the first year. But the second year, they're going to preach 24 times. And the third year, they're going to preach maybe 36 times, and then we cut them free. And it's not necessarily another salt box. What is it? It's the expansion of the kingdom of God through the local church. That is what God is about, I believe, in our day. The last thing, as I talk about some vision statements, I'm praying for a building at some point, so we're not in a middle school forever, although I'm so grateful for the middle school. Okay, it is, um, the question then becomes, uh, wh what can we do, what can you do now, right? And we're about to dismiss, and when we dismiss, I'm going to invite you to go out the doors into the cafeteria, and in the cafeteria, we have a Making Waves lunch. Just grab a sandwich, you're going to sit down, you're going to hang out, and then every ministry at Saltbox is represented there, and if you're not involved, we're inviting you to what? Get involved. Okay, now, what can you do now? There's five things. And the two of them, you're going to, maybe you'll roll your eyes at me, but that's okay. There's five things. What can you do now? Okay, if we want to be a church like Antioch, not a church like Ephesus that loses their first love, not a church like Jerusalem that enters decline because people refuse to believe, what, how do we become, how do we stay a church like Antioch? Number one, walk with Jesus. Like, hear me deeply here, church. Like, walk with him. Get a one-year Bible. Get a journal. Get an NIV Bible. We give them away out there. Find yourself. When you're driving down the road, put some worship music on. Begin to abide in the presence of Jesus. Begin to speak to him and allow him to speak to you. Let him begin to transform who you are. Like, let's actually not be a church of attenders, but a church of Jesus people who are actively day by day, moment by moment, abiding in his person and presence. Are you going to be perfect? No, but when we repent and go, Lord, would you forgive me? Or if you hurt someone and have to look at them and say, would you forgive me? The presence and power of the Lord Jesus is then made available and the kingdom of God is accessed in that moment in time. You follow me? Number one, walk with him. Really walk with him. Listen and obey. Cultivate relationship. Number two, pray with us. Like Pray with us. Like I love that the church in Acts. They prayed together. They laid hands on Saul and Barnabas, just like we did up here this morning. Pray with us. The third thing you can do, you can host a small group in your home. If you don't want to host a small group, you can attend the small group. If you don't want to do either, you can come hang out with us on Thursday nights at our offices and be in a small group. But get in a small group because you can't do this Jesus journey alone. Number one, walk with Jesus. Really journey with Jesus. Number two, pray with us. Number three, host or join a small group. Number four, give, invest, 
tithe. Give. Give. If you can't give here, where do you give? Somewhere. But the heart posture of a group of people who has chosen to be radically generous is so important. And the blessing and gracious hand of God rests on a group of people who are willing to give. Number one, walk with Jesus. Number two, pray with us. Number three, host a small group. Number four, give. Number five, use your gifts to serve. That's what this lunch is about. Let's make waves. What if we as a church actually become a group of people like Antioch, who are radically generous, who are diverse in our leadership, who believes more about reaching people out there, who believes we're called to build tools that would bless and empower the larger body of Christ? What if we begin to see people whose marriages and lives and families are transformed and some of them actually want to go and do and be ministry and we begin to send them? What if we as a church become an epicenter where we actually begin to make waves? What if you as believers and me as a believer would go out, have this little lunch, and find a spot where we can begin to serve and join in with the mission of Saltbox Church? I think our city wouldn't be the same. David, would you put that closing slide up for me? This is not Bible, okay? This is Michael's application of the Bible. What did Acts 1-8 say? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. We're not in Jerusalem, are we? Where are we? Wilmington, the state of North Carolina, the eastern seaboard, the ends of the earth. How do we fulfill the directives of King Jesus? Let's be a church that begins to believe for the city of Wilmington, for the state of North Carolina, for the eastern seaboard, and for the church around the world. And let's be a church that invests and gives and blesses and sends, not for the Saltbox name, not for any of our names or positions or platforms, but that the kingdom might expand and that we might be a church that makes waves, that affects not just this generation, but the generations that come. I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we got our arms around a lot today. Father, I pray that you would raise us up as a church and as a group that is rigorously committed to not losing our first love. Father, I pray that we'd be a group that is humble before you and each other. Father, I'm convinced that as we humble ourselves before you, the kingdom of God is accessed more fully and our destiny is opened. Father, I pray that this church would be a church that embraces the call to Wilmington, the call to the state of North Carolina, the call to the Eastern Seaboard, and the call to the ends of the earth. Father, would you fill us with your spirit today? And Father, as we end this service, as we walk out into a cafeteria, to have some sandwiches, to laugh together, to share, to break bread with one another. Lord, I pray that you would help some people find an area in this church right now where they could begin to serve. Lord, we love you. Father, don't let us lose our first love. And Father, would you make us an Antioch, a sending church, an epicenter, a cradle of Christianity. 
In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here's what I would love to invite you to do is when you stand up here in just a second is to walk out and go through that balloon arch and join us for a sandwich. And if you want to make your way around to those tables and find some place that you want to get involved, we would love to have you get more involved with our community here. Make sense? Come join us in making waves. Ready? Come join us in amen and amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.